Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. Of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for those in-house, we would ask that courtesy to see our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. I know we're all on emergency calls, but it would still be nice. Thank you, Todd. And for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion this afternoon is Tiffany Bates, who serves as a legal policy analyst in our Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. She researches and writes about the courts, judicial nominations, and other constitutional issues. She is also co-host of Heritage's SCOTUS 101 podcast, breaking down what's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. She also coordinates the Meese Center's appellate advocacy programs, and she is a regular contributor to the Daily Caller Heritage Multimedia News Organization. Please join me in welcoming Tiffany Bates. Tiffany? In a few weeks, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in Lucia versus Security and Exchange Commission, a case with important implications for administering government in an accountable manner. Federal agencies wield enormous power over the lives of Americans in many respects. For example, instead of bringing enforcement actions against individuals or businesses in federal court, agencies often opt to commence proceedings where in-house judges preside. These administrative law judges, or ALJs, make up what is sometimes called the hidden judiciary. They adjudicate claims, decide what evidence is admissible, and enforce penalties and compliance. Some believe ALJs are well-suited to handle these proceedings efficiently, but other believe, others believe they suffer from a lack of independence because they work for the agency that initiated the proceedings. In a few weeks, the Supreme Court will decide whether the SEC's ALJs are unconstitutional as currently structured. The court will consider whether they are officers of the United States within the meaning of the Constitution's Appointments Clause. Today, our expert panel will discuss why this case is important and what it means for government accountability. I'll keep my introductions very short so we can get started. Jennifer Mascott is an assistant professor of law and faculty director of the Supreme Court and Administrative Law Clinics at the Antonin Scalia Law School. Her scholarship has been cited by the Supreme Court and published in numerous law reviews. She's author of the seminal article, Who Are Officers of the United States, recently published in the Stanford Law Review. She serves as a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States, and she's a former law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and Judge Brett Kavanaugh of the D.C. Circuit. Brian O'Shea is Senior Director at the Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 
where he manages the Chamber's efforts on a number of SEC and capital markets-related issues. In addition, he advocates on behalf of Chamber members in front of regulatory agencies and elected officials. Most recently, he was Senior Advisor to Rep. Scott Garrett, Chairman of the Capital Markets Subcommittee of the House Financial Services Committee and Legislative Director to two other members of Congress. Earlier in his career, he spent six years with Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Richard Pierce is the Lyle T. Alverson Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. He's the author of over 20 books and 130 articles on administrative law, government regulation, and the effects of various forms of government intervention on the performance of markets. His books and articles have been cited in hundreds of judicial opinions, including at the Supreme Court. And finally, Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues and practice at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications and regularly provides commentary for various media outlets. He also leads Cato's very robust, robust amicus brief program, and he served as a law clerk to Judge Grady Jolly of the Fifth Circuit. Professor Mascott, I'll turn it over to you. So thanks, Tiffany, and thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting the event today. As Tiffany mentioned, the question before the court in the next few days in Lucia versus SEC involves the Appointments Clause. That clause is in Article 2 of the Constitution and basically says that if a government official is an officer of the United States, that official has to be hired or appointed using one of only a very limited set of methods. The most well-known type of officers are those known as principal officers who have to be appointed by the president with Senate consent, folks like federal judges or cabinet secretaries. But then there's another category of lesser important officers known as inferior officers who can be appointed by either the president with Senate consent or the president alone, a head of a department like a cabinet secretary or a court of law. And so the question in Lucia is whether administrative law judges known as ALJs and the Securities and Exchange Commission are inferior officers under Article II requirements or just employees who can be hired in any way that Congress decides to authorize. If the ALJs are officers, there may be a constitutional problem because the SEC ALJs were initially hired by staff, not by their department head, the SEC commissioners. The appointments clause requirements at issue in this case don't necessarily get a lot of attention as hot-button constitutional law issues, but they're really quite significant. Today in our modern governmental system, we have this idea that administrative agencies function best when they're staffed by a large group of independent experts disconnected from any elected leadership. But in our move to this idea of independent expertise, we've lost sight of the more fundamental mechanism for promoting governmental excellence, the preservation of a chain of democratic accountability and supervision that reaches all the way from low-ranking government officials up to department heads and the president, and then back to the electorate. The idea when the Constitution was first formed was that the Appointments Clause requirements would limit the number of actors who could make hiring decisions for federal officials. If the president or department head has to sign off on the hiring of a particular official, then the president or department head is going to have to take at least part of the blame if that officer later messes up. And so in that way, the Appointments Clause was to ensure transparency, 
and excellence in government hiring because department heads and presidents would have to take responsibility if they relied just on patronage and failed to appoint high-quality expert officials. So the appointments clause, even though over the years it sometimes has been neglected, really historically was a key mechanism for a government accountability in the exercise of power. And so here in Lucia, the question of whether the SEC's ALJs are officers and thus subject to this accountability of the appointments clause is an interesting one. Basically, the Supreme Court said in 1976 in Buckley versus Vallejo that any official who exercises significant authority is an officer under appointments clause requirements. But the court has not really told us much about what it means to have significant authority. About 30 years ago, in 1991, in a case called Freitag versus Commissioner, the court suggested that officials who have discretion in handling important issues would count as officers. The specific officials that issue in that case were special trial judges in the tax court who take testimony, rule on the admissibility of evidence, conduct trials. And the SEC's ALJs arguably have very similar responsibilities. So it might seem like under a pretty straightforward application of the Freitag decision that the SEC's ALJs are officers. That said, the Supreme Court hedged its bets a little bit in the Freitag decision, which included some interesting language. The court said even if the special trial judge's testimony and evidence-related responsibilities are not sufficiently significant, the judges would be officers in any event because in a certain class of cases, they issued final decisions on behalf of the tax court. So one might naturally read that language as just an alternative justification for the holding in Freitag. But the DC Circuit over the years has disagreed and has repeatedly held that administrative law judges are not officers because they don't issue final decisions for their agencies. That said, in 2016 and 2017, other circuit courts started issuing opinions at odds with the DC Circuit. And so the court now in Lucia will step in and address that circuit split. Several aspects of this case make it a particularly interesting one. First, in the lower courts, the Solicitor General's office previously had agreed with the SEC that it had properly hired its ALJs because they were just employees, not officers. But the government has now changed its position, so both of the key parties in the case agree that ALJs clearly are officers under Supreme Court precedent. Chief Justice Roberts has had to appoint an amicus or a friend of the court to argue <coughs> for the other side in favor of the DC Circuit's decision below. So that's one interesting aspect. Originally, two opposing parties now agree on the core legal issue of the case. The second interesting part of the case, though, is that the Solicitor General has gone beyond just the question of whether ALJs need to be appointed as officers. And the SG now is also saying that holding ALJs accountable to the executive and ultimately to the public means that the court needs to revisit ALJ tenure protections. It takes several layers of action and multiple agencies right now to fire ALJs, and the SG says this is an inappropriate restriction on executive power. The third really interesting aspect of this case, though, is that the appointments clause is an area where the Supreme Court just does not have a lot of recent clear precedent telling us exactly how to define the term officer. An officer's got to have significant authority, as I mentioned, that probably is related to factors like discretion and handling important issues, but that's about as definitive as the court has gotten in recent years. And then in the appointments clause cases it has considered, the court has specifically expressed a desire to stick with the text and the history relevant to the clause, indicating that this is an area of the Constitution in which the court might take a more formalist approach to interpreting constitutional appointments requirements. 
Over the past two years, I've spent a lot of time looking at the detailed historical evidence related to the meaning of officer in the Appointments Clause. But I'll say, as I've gone around and talked about Lucia at various places over the past year, I haven't really spent much time talking about the history because it has seemed to me that the court could really resolve this case on very narrow grounds, just applying its precedent in the Freitag opinion. But somewhat surprisingly, now that the case has hit the Supreme Court, and now that the government and Mr. Lucia both agree that ALJs are officers under the Freitag opinion, the litigation strategy on the other side seems to have shifted a little bit. In fact, when the court-appointed amicus submitted his brief in the case a few days ago, the amicus spent at least as much time in that brief discussing his view of the history of the Appointments Clause as he spent discussing the case law. So I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but since the history in the case now seems at least somewhat relevant to the briefing, I'll touch on the history just a little bit. My research suggests that in the 18th century, the time the Constitution was ratified, that the Appointments Clause covered any official with ongoing responsibility for carrying out a statutory duty. So what does that really mean? Well, that would mean that any official in an ongoing position who performed tasks that Congress assigned to the executive branch was an officer. The term officer was closely tied to the concept of governmental duty, and many individuals, like record-keeping clerks, revenue collectors, inspectors, lighthouse keepers, customs collectors, mates on ships who helped to uh, collect customs duties, all were thought of as officers very early on. Under the statutory duty test, the ALJs clearly would qualify because they've been delegated statutory authority to preside over hearings. Now, of course, Mr. Mitlitsky, the court-appointed amicus, has not argued for this particular standard under which his side would lose, but he's arguing instead for a standard based largely on early case law and 19th century evidence that was put forward in a 2007 opinion from the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel. And that opinion says that to be an officer, an official must exercise the sovereign authority of the United States to bind the government or alter the rights of private parties. But Mr. Mitlitsky then goes further and adds on to the test by arguing that not only do officers have to exercise this binding governmental authority, they have to exercise it in their own name. And so in his view, the ALJs wouldn't qualify under this standard because all of their adjudicative opinions are issued in the name of the SEC commissioners. Now, at least part of Mr. Mitlitsky's proposed officer test is coming from some of the early practice examples in my research, and he and I just interpret that very differently. But in my view, the ALJs would even be officers under this test put forward in the court-appointed amicus brief because ALJs do take actions in their own name during their, the course of managing their own adjudicative proceedings. In any case, it remains to be seen whether the Supreme Court will go down this track of history. If the court, though, does find the ALJs to be officers, which the court could do on any one of the number of possible grounds, that will have implications beyond just this case. We tend to think of adjudicators, or at least judges, who impact private rights as needing to be independent. If the ALJs are officers, and the court says they have to be appointed by executive department heads, and in particular if the court ever were to go further and follow the SG's lead in reducing the ALJ's tenure protections, there could be follow-on concerns about whether ALJs can remain sufficiently independent under that standard. But if those questions arise, I think the court's going to eventually have to think about whether agency adjudicators perhaps are hearing too many categories of cases to begin with. 
The answer for independence is not to say that executive branch adjudicators can be free from constitutionally mandated appointments and removal requirements. The answer instead might be that executive adjudicators need to be limited to executive matters like adjudicating benefits determinations or the granting of licenses, not imposing large civil fines and barring people from future practice in regulated industries, which is what has happened to Mr. Lucia. Thank you, uh, Tiffany, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for, um, for putting together this, uh, this very timely event. Uh, my fellow panelists, of course, can uh, talk at great length uh, and describe at great length the, uh, the constitutional issues uh, at stake here in the, uh, in the Lucia case. Um, I thought I would uh, take my role on the panel as kind of giving a bit of the uh, policy background uh, to why we've gotten to the state we are today uh, in terms of administrative proceedings. And I don't think it's any uh, accident that the SEC is the uh, agency implicated here in the Lucia case. Um, it's kind of in a lot of ways become the one agency that has received a lot of attention, a lot of criticism uh, in recent years due to its um, uh, use of administrative proceedings and, and ALJs. So our founders had a pretty clear concept of the separation of powers. You had a legislative branch that would write the laws. You had an executive branch that would enforce the laws. You had a judicial branch that would determine the scope of the laws. This is a system that obviously the, the lines around it have kind of blurred a bit uh, over the years, as you've seen the administrative state in the United States grow in, uh, in size and scope. Those three authorities, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, really began to consolidate during the New Deal era into individual agencies, as there was a belief that our economy had become so complex that we had to rely on a, a class of administrative experts to write and to carry out law in particular areas. And the SEC uh, being created in 1934 is obviously uh, an example of one of those agencies. It's also a very good example to understand how administrative proceedings have kind of morphed over the years from being simply one tool that regulators have in their toolkit to decide a narrow set of cases to being, in a lot of cases, the primary means uh, in, of enforcement that many agencies use. And a lot of this trend began at the SEC in the 1980s and the 1990s. Congress, through the 1984 Insider Trading Sanctions Act, granted the SEC the authority to seek civil damages in cases they brought, albeit only in cases that they brought in an Article III, point, Article III court. Up until that point, the SEC could only seek corrective action against those entities that it directly regulated. So, for example, if you were a broker-dealer or an investment advisor, uh, the S if the SEC found that you did something wrong, they could suspend or revoke your license. So in 1984, uh, Congress gave the, authority, uh, gave the SEC the authority for the first time to seek civil penalties, and then in 1990, with the Penny Stock Reform Act, the SEC authority uh, was further ex expanded, and Congress allowed the agency to seek monetary penalties through their administrative proceedings, but there was a catch uh, that they could only seek those monetary penalties, again, for, for entities that they directly regulated that were directly under their jurisdiction. That all changed with the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010. Section 929P of the Dodd-Frank Act granted the SEC for the first time the ability to bring cases against entities it does not directly regulate through an administrative proceeding and to seek monetary penalties against that entity. So the protections that were in place before, there are the parameters that were in place before where monetary penalties could either only be sought in court or the SEC could seek monetary penalties against 
uh, uh, an entity that it directly regulated, those were done away with, and you, you were given this uh, incredible new, uh, the SEC was given this incredible new authority uh, to the, uh, uh, through the Dodd-Frank Act. So one of the developments that happened because of that is that instead of uh, the SEC using its administrative proceedings to, to bring very technical cases uh, against an entity, something where maybe the agency had a particular uh, expertise in, you started seeing very serious fraud cases and very complex cases. Uh, and those cases that are, that are difficult to prove, for example, insider trading cases, uh, being brought through administrative proceedings as opposed to going uh, into federal court. Um, the other trend that you saw is, perhaps not surprisingly, that the SEC started using uh, uh, filing cases in, in its APs much more than it did before the Dodd-Frank Act. So depending on the statistic, statistic you look at, uh, a little bit more than about 50% of cases prior to Dodd-Frank were brought through the SEC's APs. After Dodd-Frank and in 2013 and 2014, the, those numbers crept up uh, to about 75, 76% of cases that, that it was bringing administratively versus going uh, into an Article III court. So the SEC used this new authority to great length. Uh, I, I know many of you have seen a lot of the articles and analysis have been, that have been done uh, over the years to, or since 2010 to show um, just how many more cases they were bringing through APs. There's also been a lot of analysis and estimates done about the SEC's win rate in those cases. Uh, depending on, on the, the study you're looking at, um, some people have, have criticized the SEC or, or their process. Um, because they're winning up upwards around 90% uh, of the cases that they that they bring uh, administratively, which is much higher rate uh, than they are, are winning in uh, in federal court. But all of this obviously came at a cost, uh, and a significant cost, and that cost was the the uh, weakening or the loss of due process protections that are typically afforded defendants uh, when a federal agency uh, takes an action against them, and, and the the defendant. Um, has the protections, the Article III protections um, that have long existed. So administrative proceedings, of course, are not subject uh, to the federal rules of civil procedure. They're not subject to the federal rules of evidence. Uh, the SEC's uh, rules of practices, which had not been updated uh, since 1995, um, limited the number of depositions uh, that could be taken uh, by defendants. Um, they also limited uh, the amount of time that a, a defendant had uh, to respond or, or to pre uh, prepare um, for a proceeding that the SEC was taking against it. So you could have cases where uh, the SEC maybe spent two or three years uh, building a case against an individual, and the SEC would often give them perhaps as little as 120 days um, to build their defense uh, as the action was being take taken against them. And of course, there's no opportunity uh, through the administrative proceedings uh, for uh, a jury to hear the case. This is all done. Uh, through the administrative law judges and, and uh, in-house, if that's the right term, uh, at the SEC. Another big problem has been that if you want to appeal a ruling from an ALJ, the initial appeal uh, goes, uh, is first goes to the, the set of commissioners that, in the first place, voted to bring an action against you. So you're basically appealing to the same body uh, that voted to bring an enforcement action against you, and so there's questions about the impartiality of that, uh, the fairness of that, uh, and whether you were really getting, uh, in an appeal, a, a fair hearing uh, if you want to challenge uh, whatever action has been taken against you. Um, 
in 2015, uh, the SEC recognizing that there had been this growing criticism about how much uh, they were using their administrative proceedings and how much that had increased since Dodd-Frank and the, uh, the lack of due process protections, uh, proposed to amend its rules and practices, um, and they allowed uh, defendants to take a limited number uh, of depositions, but still far less uh, than would be, would be allowed um, in federal district court. Um, they also extended uh, uh, slightly the amount of time that the defendant would have to prepare uh, its defense against uh, an SEC action. But as one of my colleagues said at the time, that was more a crawl in the right direction um, than a, a, a serious response to addressing a lot of the constitutional problems um, that, that have, been, uh, have been levied at the SEC. Um, so I, I think just a, a, a couple of other points um, you know, to make in, in terms of uh, SEC enforcement overall. Um, the SEC had to answer a lot of questions beginning in, in 2010 when the Dodd-Frank Act was passed, and as they were, uh, as you saw these numbers increase um, uh, in terms of, of what they were bringing administratively. And you know, one thing that has concerned us and concerned a lot of people is oftentimes the explanation or the defense of the enforcement program at the SEC or at any agency, if you look at uh, the annual reports that they give and enforcement st statistics, oftentimes the first thing that they note in the report was the increase uh, in overall uh, enforcement cases that, that they brought that year versus previous years. And we have always made the point that the, the measure of a successful enforcement program should not just be, are you bringing more cases uh, than you've brought before? That doesn't necessarily translate into, in the SEC's case, true protection of investors, and it doesn't necessarily translate into another important goal of an enforcement program, which is to properly inform the rulemaking of the agency. So I, we've always been concerned that there's this feeling if, if you make it easier, uh, in a sense, for the SEC to bring a case administratively, that should not necessarily translate to, well, if they're bringing more cases, then the enforcement program is more successful. The question is more, are they bringing the right cases and is the enforcement program truly protecting investors? Is it truly informing uh, other roles and other uh, responsibilities that the agency have? And so that's agency has, and so that's been uh, kind of one of our longstanding concerns, just in terms of the approach uh, to enforcement brought by the SEC and others. Um, so all of this is, to, is to, to say that you know there's been you know we think a lot of rightful criticism of the SEC's uh, enforcement program, particularly since Dodd Frank. It has gotten the attention. Uh, certainly a lot of market participants. It's gotten the attention of a lot of people on Capitol Hill. Uh, my former boss, Scott Garrett, had introduced legislation uh, last Congress that would effectively grant uh, defendants uh, in SEC cases the right to have their case removed to a federal district court um, if they felt that the due process protections in the AP were not sufficient. Um, that's also been reintroduced this Congress and something that uh, a lot of members um, are, are, are looking uh, at as a, as a possibility to address a lot of the concerns that have been raised in this. Um, and I also just uh, kind of give this policy background again to highlight the importance of the Lucia case uh, that you know, we hope will bring some kind of measure of accountability, some kind of measure of constitutionality uh, to administrative proceedings, not just at the SEC, but elsewhere. So, thank you. Let me thank uh, Heritage as well for, for uh, sponsoring this. And uh, let me just start by saying I, I 
I'm very sympathetic to most everything that Brian had to say. It has nothing to do with the Lucia case. So if, if you don't like the practice that uh, SEC is now using of, of sending a lot of these cases to uh, in-house judges instead of uh, trying them in federal court, you need to go to Congress. Congress is the only institution that has the power to change that. They can change it tomorrow if they choose to do so. The Lucio case has nothing whatsoever to do with that decision. Now, what's it at stake in the Lucio state? The, the, Jennifer described the only issue that the court has agreed to decide in uh, the Lucia case. That is whether administrative law judges are employees or inferior officers. Uh, I filed a brief on behalf of 29 scholars in, in, in the case, and we took no position on that because, frankly, none of us think it matters. It is a zero consequence. So if, the, if, if Jennifer's perspective on that prevails, and I think there's a very good chance that it will, and the court holds that uh, administrative law judges are inferior officers, then the SEC has already resolved that problem. As soon as the Solicitor General changed his position and decided not to defend the prior position of the government that, that uh, ALJs are, are employees, the SEC immediately changed its method of appointing uh, ALJs to make it very clear that the new method is 100% consistent with their status as inferior officers uh, and with the provisions of the Appointments Clause. So before that, the SEC had delegated to its chief administrative law judge the decision-making about who to appoint as an ALJ. And as soon as the SG changed its position, the SEC said, okay, we hereby withdraw that delegation. We ratify all of the prior decisions of the, the chief administrative law judge, and we now take responsibility for making those decisions ourselves. That will not affect anything. All the same people will be taking all the same actions in all the same cases. Every one of those people to be appointed must first be determined to be uh, eligible, to be uh, eligible for appointment through a meritocratic process that's administrated by, administered by the Office of Personnel Management. So you can only choose from the people on that list. The Supreme Court opinion will have no effect whatsoever on that. And then the, the, you can be sure that what the SEC will do is ask the chief ALJ, who knows more about this than anybody else in the agency, well, which of these people do you think are most qualified? And the chief ALJ will say, well, I think Joe Jones, or whoever the hell it might be, is the most qualified. And the SEC is going to say, yep, okay, he's appointed. That's all this case will do in terms of resolution of the one issue before the court. The reason that a bunch of us filed a brief is we were concerned that the court might issue a broad opinion that talked about the provisions of uh, the Administrative Procedure Act that Congress created and enacted in 1946 that are designed to reduce, to minimize the, the pro-agency bias of administrative law judges. In the 1930s, there were widespread complaints by regulated firms that administrative law judges, then called hearing examiners, were strongly biased in favor of the agency. 
And there were a whole lot of investigations, congressional investigations of those complaints, and the investigations said, yeah, that's true. Why are they so biased? Because they are beholden to the heads of the agencies. So if, when it came to some evidentiary ruling, then you can be damn sure that the ALJ, out of fear of being fired by the head of the agency, would say, I'm going with the agency. I'm ruling in favor of the agency. So Congress looked at that and debated it for 15 years, uh, all the way through until 1946, when finally, unanimously, Congress said, okay, we've resolved this. We've come up with, a, with six provisions, statutory provisions, that are designed to maximize the degree of insulation of the administrative law judge from the power of the agency head. The most important of those is a provision that says that the agency head can't fire the ALJ because the ALJ makes a ruling the agency head doesn't like. The, the agency head can only fire the ALJ by making a finding or presenting to another agency uh, his case that the ALJ should be removed for cause. Okay? We, the, those of us who filed the brief, were very concerned that the court might uh, issue an opinion that would go beyond the issue that Jennifer discussed and would talk about the removal issue and might even say, ah, maybe it, that's not constitutional. Maybe that, okay? And we think that would be horrible. We think that would be horrible because of its effect on regulated firms. Regulated firms spent tons and tons of resources from 1934 until 1946 getting Congress to pass all of these safeguards that are designed to keep ALJs from uh, being biased or to minimize at least the, the extent to which they might be biased in favor of the, the agency. Those are now what's up at gra for grabs because even though the Supreme Court refused to grant cert to consider that issue because it wasn't even raised in the case and wasn't discussed in the lower court opinions, the Solicitor General decided to make it a big deal in his brief. So he devoted 17 pages to an argument that said these, these restrictions on removal are either unconstitutional or must be interpreted in such a way as to allow the head of the agency to fire, remove an ALJ for virtually any purpose. Okay? Now, I think that is a horrible, horrible mistake on three grounds. First, the Supreme Court the SG initially asked the court to include that question in the grant of cert, and the, the, the Supreme Court said no. So now the Solicitor General is coming in and saying, uh, well, I know better than you justices what you should be hearing, uh, and that's what I'm going to be arguing. That's always a big mistake. You don't walk into the Supreme Court and say, I know better than you do what to argue. Okay, nah. That, that uh, sets things on the wrong foot to start with. Second, if his agenda, I suspect his agenda, is to minimize the circumstances in which the president can remove someone only for cause. Okay? And I'm kind of sympathetic to that as, as well. This is the worst possible case to use as a vehicle for that. The reason why Congress did what it did in 1946 and the reason the Supreme Court in five unanimous opinions upheld it was because they, the Supreme Court concluded that it was required in order to protect the values of due process to protect the rights of regulated firms from the, the then 
horribly pro-agency biased ALJs. Uh, so I think it's a, a terrible, terrible decision to try to convince the Supreme Court to eliminate those provisions that are specifically designed to protect the due process rights of regulated firms. And then I think it's just a political screw-up. Uh, I, I, last I saw, uh, heard, uh, regulated firms are an important constituency of the Republican Party, and uh, uh, this would have a terrible effect on regulated firms. As regulated firms learn what the Solicitor General is arguing and what effect his acceptance of his argument would have, I hope that many of you will give voice to your concerns about where in the world he is planning to go with these arguments. Thank you. Thanks to uh, Heritage for, for having me. It took about a, a decade of my being in the think tank business to get my first invitation at the uh, uh, at the Mies Center, so I finally got my, my bobblehead, and, and now here in the prestigious Allison Auditorium, I guess they're going to give me socks or a tie or something this time. I'm very excited about that. Um, uh, I'm also excited that everyone is pronouncing the name of this case correctly. It's Lucia, with a, with a ch, and whether it's Italian or Latin, I don't think it's a, it's a Spanish name, so, so that's good. I'm a, whatever the um, pronunciation equivalent of uh, Scalia's snoot is, that, that, that's what I am, so I'm glad everyone's getting that right. Uh, Jennifer touched on many of the points that I want to make, so I'm going to elaborate on them. And, of course, we begin with first principles, and that is that the Constitution created three branches of government. The legislative and executive branches are supposed to be periodically checked by the judicial. To make that uh, – or sorry, they're, well, they're checked by the judicial, but, but they're also checked periodically by the uh, electorate. And to make that electoral check work for the executive branch, the one official – uh, actually accountable to voters in the executive branch, the president, is supposed to be able to supervise it. As Madison noted during the Constitutional Convention, if any power whatsoever is in its nature executive, it's the power of appointing, overseeing, and controlling those who execute the laws. Of course, the president is also the one who has a duty to see that the laws be faithfully executed. And to do this, he must be able to remove officers who fail in their duties as he sees it. And yet the president lacks the ability to remove SEC administrative law judges, the ALJs, who abuse their powers or fail to use their discretion wisely or intelligently. These ALJs are thus insulated from electoral control or accountability. Now, the D.C. Circuit panel here ruled that the reason that they're not subject to presidential removal is that they're not uh, executive officers. Uh, when the case was reheard on Bonk, the court split five to five, leaving in place the panel's characterization of, ALJ, of ALJs as something less than officers subject to removal. I'm going to focus on the removal aspect, but to be clear, the reason that they're officers is because of their discretion and their power. And there are several precedents uh, in the Supreme Court, as well as congressional practice, even a, an attorney general opinion, uh, that talk about uh, how we determine what officers are. The Supreme Court has declared, for example, that special trial judges, STJs, uh, and court clerks are officers. If anything, ALJs have more power and exercise more duties with greater discretion and independence than the STJs or the court clerks. Um, ALJs perform more than ministerial tasks, as the 
as the Supreme Court uh, uh, described STJs in the Freitag case in 1991. Um, uh, ALJs actually are able to render more final opinions than, than STJs are. Um, uh, court clerks uh, uh, are only able to issue default judgments. ALJs can do more than that. Um, at the founding, jurists understood that a, a position's uh, holder must be an officer of executing the duties of that position entailed exercising coercive authority. So if you have power to make someone do something or punish them, then you're an officer, as you know, uh, Justice Scalia liked to look at law dictionaries, and if we're being good originalists, I think we have to. Here's a, a law dictionary from 1773, a new law dictionary. It is a rule that where one man hath to do with another's affairs against his will without his leave, that is an office, and he who is in it an officer. Chief Justice John Marshall articulated a test for distinguishing an officer from an employee in an 1823 case called United States versus Maurice. Uh, that was based on contract law of all things. He explained that if a position didn't require a contract because the government had prescribed duties or the position independent of a specific position holder, then that position is in office, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Even Buckley versus Vallejo, the famous uh, campaign finance case uh, from, se- from 1976, talked about uh, officers exercising significant authority and, quote, all appointed officials exercising responsibility under the public laws of the nation uh, are officers. Uh, and so considering how much more closely the ALJ position aligns with an, the definition of an officer rather than employee, I think this uh, shouldn't be a surprise. Now, um, what uh, makes them then subject to uh, removal under the Appointments Clause? Well, the Constitution guarantees that even officers who are appointed, not simply uh, elected, are accountable to the people. Uh, Although it offers no explicit guidance on removals, judges have understood that removals, quote, empower the president to keep these officers uh, accountable, and that's in the case of Free Enterprise Fund versus uh, Peekaboo, Public uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board in in, in 2010, which sort of rewrote the statute about removal of of the SEC. But nevertheless, the president has to have uh, that power. And judges have understood, really, since the founding, um, that the president needs the removal power to ensure that the laws be faithfully uh, executed. It doesn't specify how other than impeachment, and indeed at the founding or in the first Congress, there was an argument made that uh, impeachment was the only proper method of removal because it was the only one specifically mentioned. Madison disagreed, declaring that, quote, it's absolutely necessary that the president have the power of removing from office. It will make him in a peculiar manner responsible for their conduct and subject him uh, subject him to impeachment himself if he suffers them to perpetrate with impunity high crimes or misdemeanors or neglects to superintend their conduct. Such a power to remove officers was seen at the time as incident to the power of appointment, as the Supreme Court held in Myers versus United States in 1926. And if a limitation on the president's removal power is unconstitutional, then it hardly matters which entity exercises that limitation. As Madison said, if the executive officer shall not be displaced, but by and with advice uh, and consent of the Senate, the president is no longer answerable for the conduct of the officer. When an ALJ goes beyond the powers of the office, but the Merit System Protection Board, the MSPB, or the SEC itself, refuses to exercise its removal power, then how can the president ensure um, uh, that the uh, the ALJs are accountable to the American people, which elected official 
uh, are the American people to blame. And curiously, SEC ALJs are protected by three layers of for-cause protection. The first uh, is that the SEC can only remove an ALJ for cause. Second, that determination of cause must be confirmed by the MSPBs, uh, MSPB, whose members themselves can only be removed for cause. And third, the Free Enterprise Fund case established that SEC commissioners also are only removable for cause. So rather than uh, that, that uh, Free Enterprise Fund case was called Humphrey's Executor Squared, I guess this is Humphrey's Executor Cubed or uh, some other mathematical uh, uh, analogy that's uh, beyond uh, my uh, uh, purvey in, in, in making. In any event, um, the quasi-judicial nature of an ALJ's, an ALJ's role uh, doesn't change their status or how to analyze their office under the Appointments Clause. Um, for over 90 years, the Supreme Court has found that uh, presidential accountability applies even to officers who have quasi-judicial functions. In Myers, uh, it held that even for quasi-judicial executive officers, the president, quote, may consider the decision after its rendition as a reason for removing the officer on the ground that the discretion regularly entrusted to that officer by statute has not been on the whole intelligently or wisely exercised. Um, this is applied to the comptroller of the Treasury, which was considered quasi-judicial back in the day. Uh, for that matter, the president has removed territorial judges. These are Article I judges, not Article III, uh, or Article IV even, I think. Um, uh, but regardless, uh, that question was posed before the Civil War that early in our history when Attorney General John Crittenden was specifically asked about the power to remove territorial judges without congressional authorization, and he concluded that this removal power, quote, has been long since settled. In 1851, it was long since settled and has ceased to be a subject of controversy or doubt. The D.C. Circuit itself, in the case of Koretsky uh, in 2014, considered the presidential removal of tax judges, and the court held that a tribunal may be considered a court of law for purposes of the Appointments Clause, notwithstanding that its officers may be removed by the president. So these examples uh, include executive officers who certainly exercise quasi-judicial functions, even those that are nominally uh, uh, called courts of law. ALJs sit somewhere in the middle of this continuum. I think that's uh, well settled that the president must have the power to remove um, officer sitting at both ends of that spectrum, so how could uh, ALJs who are in the middle uh, not be the same, at least, at the very least, for cause? And so, in sum, ALJs are squarely within the executive branch and remain executive uh, officers who should be subject to control by superior officers, which is the SEC, I guess, and ultimately the president. Uh, the appointments clause serves to control these officers at the front end and the removal clause uh, the back, as the court has made clear in a series of cases that uh, culminated in Free Enterprise Fund and included Freytag and others that I've mentioned. Uh, Lucia presents an important application of the appointments clause. Uh, if we accept arguments like those presented um, uh, or rather, uh, arguments like those presented to the D.C. Circuit were also presented to the Tenth Circuit in a case called Bandemir, uh, and that court rightly concluded that ALJ officers, uh, ALJs are officers who must be appointed and removed in accordance with Article II. So the Supreme Court should now similarly hold, which would ensure accountability and adherence to basic constitutional principles and help rein in the administrative state that has become the fourth branch of government. Thanks.
I just have one question for anybody in the audience. Uh, uh, would you want an SE chair appointed by a liberal Democrat to have the power to remove any administrative law judge at will for any reason? If so, then you're, you're acting contrary to the views expressed by uh, all regulated firms in that 15-year debate that led to the enactment of the Administrative Procedure Act. Let me just add to that for, for a second, just in talking about, because I think it's the SG who's really raised the removal questions in the case. And I think precisely my understanding of what happened is that Mr. Lucia raised this question about the appointments clause. And then in the briefing, the SG added on some discussion at the cert level stage about the question of removal. And really what the court did was just not respond directly to that removal discussion and just continue to use the wording of the question presented that Mr. Lucia first put forward. So that would suggest that the court doesn't want to open up the extra question, but look, we know, you know we've got great litigators in the SG's office. Often the Supreme Court um, decides cases on issues we might not expect. We can look at the health care decision a few years ago, ground maybe the tax power that we wouldn't all have immediately thought of. And so I think it makes sense, obviously, for the SG in protecting the institutions of the ex executive branch to try to make sure that the constitutionality of the current structure now is addressed head on and completely. The other thing is if you read, I mean, the SG is very precise about removal protections. In no way, um, at least in my reading of it, maybe there's disagreement, is there a suggestion that the ALJs would lose tenure protections? The SG, I think, is looking for the court maybe to further explain what it means in the statute by good cause and to clarify that um, for failure to follow directions, for insufficient performance, for actual wrongdoing, those are reasons in which the ALJs can be... Um, removed if they need to be. And obviously, I mean, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of ALGs over the past few months, wonderful people. I don't see any reason to think that, you know, clarifying that uh, statutory provision there would necessarily need to make anybody nervous. So in my view, I actually am not really sure that the SG's brief has gone that far. The other thing it did do is it tried to clarify how much of a role the Merit Systems Protection Board should have in being able to evaluate good cause and say that role should be more limited just to determining that there's a factual basis for the SG or the SEC commissioner's um, determination that somebody needs to face disciplinary requirements. But again, I mean, the MSPB here, as uh, Ilya mentioned, is sort of an extra layer that's keeping the SEC from really being able to um, operate with the ALJs in a way that it may make um, their power more accountable. And so I don't, I don't think the narrowing in the SG's brief is necessarily going to have the dramatic um, impact that, um, that folks around town might, might fear. Um, in fact, some might think, probably, uh, you know, a lot of folks might think it could even go further, but we'll see. I, I think the court's unlikely to reach that here. Um, so I don't think there's too much cause to be um, too focused on it. But I do think that, um, you know, dealing with the appointments in the case here would have a lot of value. Um, it, there's also been a question about, you know, would, would it have a lot of impact? And I think at the end of the day, if we're, if we're honest, the ALGs really in the current structure, as I see it, don't have a lot of independence in decision-making in the sense that the SEC commissioners at the end of the day can review de novo or take a fresh look at any of the ALJ's decisions. So the question is whether we want that to be happening 
um, without also having this um, means for democratic accountability and the SECs having to take responsibility for the ALJs that they hire in the first place. Right now, the SEC commissioners, in a sense, can have their cake and eat it too. They can redo the ALJs' decisions if they want to or distance themselves by saying, well, we didn't appoint these people in the first place. They're independent. And I think we just want credit to be where credit is due um, and make sure that we have um, a, a nice chain of authority like there should be within the SEC. Let's open it up for questions. Um, please wait for the microphone, state your name and affiliation, and please ask a question and do not give a speech. David Burton, the Heritage Foundation. In answer to your question, Professor, the answer would be, in my case, no. But it also raises a more fundamental question as raised by the title of this event, Are ALJs Constitutional? It seems to me that we're sort of sideswiping a larger, more fundamental issue that we've let a judicial function creep into the executive branch, and that we have, we're talking about independence, we're talking about adjudicators, we're talking about, in effect, trials, but they're occurring in the executive branch, and at least as I understand the Constitution, those functions should be discharged by the judiciary. And I was wondering if any of the panelists have uh, concerns that we've let the administrative state not only creep into the legislative branch, but now for, well, actually for quite some time, increasingly creep in to or, or intrude on the judicial function. I, I certainly have that concern. That, in order for the courts to address that, that would have to be based on an interpretation and application of Article Three of the Constitution. And uh, I, I know the case law in that area extremely well, and and there, there is no chance that uh, a court would today hold that Article Three requires that these cases, SEC enforcement cases, be um, adjudicated in Article Three courts. And when I asked the lawyer for Lucia, well, you know, since since your client and everybody else in this business is, is mainly concerned about bias. Why didn't you make the Article Three argu argument? His honest answer was, because I'd lose. Uh, that and, and, and of course, I, my job is to represent a particular firm. And, and he's certainly doing his job. If, if he wins on the appointment issue, then what he's asking for is a remedy in the form of a new trial. Well, you get a new trial, you can you can get a new result. And, and it's quite possible that the current commissioners would have quite different views from the commissioners who determined that his client... And so, you know, he's serving his client well, but he decided not to, to make the Article Three argument because it's simply a loser today. There's not a single justice who would, would hold that. Now, maybe that's all wrong, and Jennifer has some ideas of maybe she can convince the court over the long term to change that whole body of law. But that's a big change. That's not an incremental change. On Vecchioni, cause of action. Does everyone agree that the SEC has fixed the original problem, uh, as Professor Pierce says? And do you think that once they make this decision, um, it won't really have much of effect because each of the independent agencies will do the same thing? Layers of protection are left now. I've, I've, I've lost track. Yeah. 
issue of whether the um, commissioners have adequately ratified the appointments of the ALJs. Um, there's a, a blog post by a professor at University of Chicago that suggests perhaps maybe the SEC's order has not gone far enough. The SEC, after the SG changed its position, ratified the appointments of the ALJs that have been uh, previously selected. But this professor um, points out that the SEC's order doesn't explicitly disclaim any authority to go back and operate differently in the future. So how outcome determinative that is, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly moving forward, as new ALJs are selected, there'd be a big difference. Supreme Court were to say that they needed to be appointed under Article 2. Todd Gaziano from the Pacific Legal Foundation. I actually want to follow up on, on the last question. The other um, general requirement for ratification of a, a government action for someone that wasn't appointed pursuant to the Appointments Clause, I'm, I'm not familiar with the University of Chicago professor's blog, is that, um, they, first of all, it's a knowing, it's got to be a knowing ratification, it can't be a global one. And secondly, the law suggests that the government actor, the ratifier, has to show that they would have made the exact same decision. When Cordray, who was improperly appointed, was then properly appointed, he could say, yes, I would have made the same decisions I made and ratified, and, 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 and that's a very different situation. And one reason to suspect and want to see if both Professor Pierce mascot or Shapiro disagree is that the framers came up with the Appointments Clause because they thought people appointed pursuant to the Appointments Clause would make different decisions than, than others. So it seems to me to undermine the position to have this sort of global, universal ratification, it, it seems quite vulnerable to me. Ratifying five rather than one, I mean, they, they got to know these five people. We're not talking about thousands. We're talking five ALJs. You know, maybe so, in which case the correction is five orders to replace the one. And each order says, I hereby appoint Joe Jones as... Tom Smith, and, and that's it. The past actions? Oh, that's a whole different thing. And that's why Lucia's lawyer is doing the right thing in, in his representation of Lucia. No question about that. Uh, you know, ratifying the past conduct, that, that's very complicated. No, I'm talking about... No, they, they actually said a little different than that. They, they, they told them, and I'm not sure that that's legal, and I think uh, when you look at the remedy side of this uh, as to past actions, then certainly the Lucia's lawyer has, has a good point, and, and the case law is, is, is a bit of a mess, frankly, on, on the remedial side of it. But none of that has to do with what happens in the future. In the future the commissioners are going to choose the same damn people using the same method. And it makes so much sense to say, well, the person who knows the most about how to evaluate the qualifications of somebody to be an ALJ is our chief ALJ. So we're going to ask the chief ALJ now, instead of making the, the decisions, to give us a recommendation. And it's unfathomable to me that the commissioners would then say, well, thanks, Chief ALJ, for the recommendation, 
but we decided not to hire the person you recommended. They're, they're going to appoint the same people. I mean, I don't know if we know for sure how, how the what the chief ALJ's role is going to be moving forward. And the appointments clause, it's more about the SEC commissioners putting their name on the bottom line. But to be more precise, what was ratified by this order was the appointments of the ALJs. Um, the, the ratification order tries to address um, open proceedings, and it would it encourage the ALJs to go back, I believe, to all decisions that were currently pending before the commission. Um, either upon initial review by the ALJ or the SEC commissioners itself and go back through the reasoning, give parties possibly a chance to submit more evidence, do those kinds of things, and then go back and try to redo um, each decision. Uh, so that's the current process they have in place. So it doesn't change anything on the removal side? Nothing's been changed on the removal no. side, no. Adam Gustafson, Boyd and Gray and Associates. To follow up on an earlier question about other independent agencies, I, I think I remember that in the en banc DC Circuit argument, there was a lot of concern about uh, the Social Security Administration in particular, because I, as I understand it, lots of ALJs are, are housed there. What, um, in terms of evaluating the potential application of this case, for the administrative state at large, how, how is the Social Security Administration and other agencies going to um, inform the court's decision? I don't know. The, 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 uh, there's nothing in the main briefs that addresses that at all. There is a separate amicus brief that was filed by the Association of Administrative Law Judges at the Social Security Administration. And you're certainly right. I mean, that's of, of the 1,936 administrative law judges, six, 1,655 of them preside at the Social Security Administration. So that's a, a very important subset of this. And they argue that they're in a different situation, that even if the arguments made by Lucia's lawyer and now joined by the, the Solicitor General, very similar to, to the arguments you heard Jennifer making, even if those arguments are correct as in their application to SEC ALJs and other ALJs at regulatory agencies, that they don't apply to ALJs at the Social Security. I do not know whether or to what extent the Supreme Court will think about SSA ALJs separately. Nobody else, to the best of my recollection, nobody else who filed a brief just addressed that issue at all. Questions? Okay, please join me in thanking our panelists. Yeah, we got we got a whole bunch more coming, don't we? <laughs> oh, we have a whole bunch of other issues that we're uh, we're jousting. Uh, in some cases, joust. Sometimes we agree. Sometimes we disagree. We have fun. We always have fun at it. That's it. <laughs> and you're joining us for lunch, right? Food. I cannot.